0: The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please go to www.folfcrc.com. Sure is good to be with you all on Father's Day. Glad you're here. Let's pray as we come before God's Word together, ask him for help. Father, we do thank you again that you are the great father, even if some of us are here today with a bad taste in our mouth towards Father's Day because of what we've experienced or uh, had happen in our lives. Lord, we, we thank you that you are not like the, uh, the faulty fathers in the world, but rather um, we are meant to be like you. So thank you, Lord, for your provision, your care, your protection, your love, your encouragement, your affirmation that you give us. And thank you that that belongs to us simply through faith in Christ, nothing else. And Lord, thank you that you speak to us as any good father would. You teach us, you you fellowship with us. Lord, help us to hear from you this morning. As we study your word, I pray for your help. For me as uh, I try to teach this faithfully, please give me what I need. And I pray for all of us that uh, we would hear your voice speaking. It would be bigger than any speech anyone could give, but you would be here with us relating to us, drawing us to yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's Father's Day, and we're just going to continue through our study um, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, and that means we're in the last half of chapter 6, and that means we're talking about the meaning of sex, so don't blame me, right? It's, It's the Bible's fault. And some of you might say, wait, the meaning of sex on Father's Day? And I might say... If you think about it, there could be a connection. (laughs) Actually, this text is incredibly important uh, to give a, well, really, as a Christian would say, God's view of sexuality. And I don't know if you've been paying attention, but God's view is not understood or celebrated much in our culture, in our day, and sometimes even in our lives as his people. This is a very important passage, and especially, I guess I could say this morning, if you're a father, or if you plan on being one, you should understand the meaning of this passage very well, and you should put it to practice in your life, and you'd better be able to model and teach it as well. So important. The meaning of sex, what does it mean? Just as introduction, let me show you three major statements in this text that we can use as an outline to start to get an idea as to what Paul's talking about look with me at verse 18 and i don't i don't mind if you uh, answer out loud what does paul want for the corinthians in verse 18 flee so run away flee from what from what immorality. sexual immorality now it's it's important to say and notice he didn't say flee from sex okay sex isn't bad sex is great god made it F- flee from sexual what Immorality. Immorality is a twisting, it's a degrading, it's a corrupting. It's taking something away from the beauty of what it should be and making it less, making it worse. Flee from it. Why would Paul have to say that to the Corinthians? Because they were practicing it. Okay? And even you have prostitutes listed in here. So some commentators say, well, maybe it's an illustration. Others say, well, there's probably people in the church who have rationalized that it would be okay to visit a prostitute. So praise Jesus on Sunday, hit the red light district on Sunday night. It's been an issue all through Corinthians, hasn't it? You guys, he's continually saying, be who you are. Live with integrity based on who you are. Know what it means to be who you are. Live it out. So flee from sexual immorality. Now, some maybe you're a skeptic and you're like, see, if you're a skeptic this morning, you're saying, see, I knew it. Uh, Christianity is closed-minded. It's judgmental. It's about following rules, wearing a straight jacket, just trying to control... Our that if, if you're that person, can we just, can we think for a moment? Do you ever think there should be boundaries on sexual practice at all? What are the boundaries? Certainly have some. Where do you get those? Let me just give you one quote from a man named Demosthenes, a reputable citizen of Athens, okay? So this guy, in his quote, represents the sexual culture of the day that the Corinthians were living in. This is what Demosthenes says. I I love this guy. It's so funny. He says, we keep mistresses for pleasure, concubines for our day-to-day bodily needs, and we have wives to produce legitimate children and serve as trustworthy guardians of our homes. Sexual ethic of the day. Now, if you're a lady, how many of you are like, oh, that sounds wonderful. (laughs) Which one do you want to be? Okay? No thank you, right? Blow the city up. No thank you. Look, is that good for people? Is that kind of a sexual ethic good for people? Is that good for women? It degrades them. Is it good for children? It's terrible. Is, there, is fatherhood even in the equation other than the biological reproduction? No, it's awful. And wouldn't you say, boy, they're missing the meaning of sex. They've missed it. I hope you'd say that. Okay, then. But that raises the question, what is what is the meaning of sex? How do you know? So Paul's given us a, a behavior, verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Next he makes a statement in verse 15. Do you not know? And when the apostle says that, that means this is something obvious that you should know. Do you not know, verse 15, your bodies are, do you see it? Members of Christ. Did you know this about yourself? If you've trusted in Jesus you have, it's not just a, it's not just a, a get out of jail free card you've received. Get out of hell card. You're actually united with him. You're connected to him in a personal deep way. It's, you're unified with Christ. So this is an identity thing. So why should the Corinthians flee from sexual immorality according to Paul. Not because sex is bad and we're anti-joy at this church. No. First of all, it's because of who you are. You're connected to Jesus. So in other words, your identity in Christ is where you look to guide how sexuality should be practiced. It's who Christ is and what he's done that shows us a sexual ethic. Your identity is the reason. Statement 3, look at verse 13. Paul says there in verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach, the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. What I want you to see right now is this. The body is not, what's that next word? Meant for sexual immorality. Meant. Such a simple word, such an amazing word. What is in the word meant? It's about meaning, it's about intention, it's about purpose. Who made your body? God did. And he made it for a reason, for a purpose, for a goal. So in other words, you were made for something. You were made for something amazing. And really the meaning of life, freedom in life, is to find that and live it out. And so when we practice sexual immorality, we're actually contradicting the way we're made. We've lost our sense of purpose. And so we're misusing something. God made you for a purpose. God made sexuality for a purpose. God made you and your body and your sexuality for a purpose. And this applies to all of us, no matter the context or situation of life you're in today. So abstain from sexual immorality, that's what he said, because of who you are in Jesus Christ, your identity. And that has given you, has shown you your purpose, what you're made for. That's going to show us the meaning of sex. As we think about the meaning of sex, I want to think about our culture just a little bit. I think you'll find all these familiar. Uh, Tim Keller is helpful when he looks out on cultural history. He observes three ways of explaining, or three ways of showing the meaning of sex in culture. So I'm going to give you these and think about them together. Number one is sexual realism. Okay, if you're taking notes, sexual realism. What does that mean? Well, that's basically the idea that sex is just a necessary physical appetite. There's a rapper a while ago who said, Come on, baby, let's uh, do it like mammals, like they do on the Discovery Channel. Okay, Pop culture view of sex. So what, what do animals do? They have a desire to have sex, because that's right? survival of the fittest. you got to have babies. Why do, why do we have sex? Same thing. It's just a natural desire. You see it in the Corinthians, right? Hey, the stomach's made for food. The food's made for the stomach. i got sexual organs, too gotta have sex it's a physical desire that's what it is now grain of truth is sex a physical desire well sure it is is it only a physical desire is that it really if you are in or if you've ever been in a committed relationship and you found out that your partner had had sex with someone else how would you feel how did you feel You were broken, you were crushed, you were angry, you were hurt, you were betrayed. And what if that person came back to you and said, Hey, when a boy's hungry, he's got to eat. It's just a physical desire. You might say, get out of my face before I kill you. Because what does your heart know? Is it just a physical desire? Really? You don't get mad if your boyfriend takes somebody else's hand. You get mad if they would have sex with somebody else. Why? Why? Because it means more than that. It means something more. We're made knowing it means something about commitment, something about intimacy. And yet, a large part of culture wants to say, no, it's a physical, just do it safely. That's, that's all, just do it safely. No. So sexual re- realism, it can't show us the real meaning of sex. There's another one called sexual Platonism. Now we're being really scholarly, but Plato was an ancient thinker and, and his, his thought is actually quite common through the history of worldviews, and that's this. The spiritual is what's really good. Spiritual is what's most important. And the physical or the body, well, that's just junky. That's second rate. Not as important. And you might think, well, that's, who cares? Well, it leads to a view of sex that goes like this. Ooh, yucky, gross, but we got to do it to live. Okay, yucky, gross, but we got to do it to live, right? So I guess we have to have sex so the human race won't die out, but, but yuck. Strikingly, a lot of churches have embraced this view. Okay? I had a friend who said to my sister right before her wedding, well, even though you're getting married and you're going to go on your honeymoon, you'll still, like, be a virgin in your heart, you know? And my sister was wise enough to be like, nope, <laughs> not at all or maybe you came out of a Roman Catholic background what do we want to make darn well sure Mary never did she never had sex why because she's holy wait what now if you're Joseph would you like to have a voice in this conversation <laughs> you mean I got to sleep with the holy virgin for my whole life and never consummate our marriage how is that holy How is that good? Where did we get the idea that the quote-unquote spiritual was good and the quote-unquote physical was bad and therefore sex was bad? I've encountered this so many times, it makes me laugh. I told somebody once I was a pastor and the man actually said to me, he was very, very frank, he actually said, well, I guess you can only have sex to have children. I was like, brother, let me school you. Proverbs 5.18 let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. And all God's people said, amen. amen. This view is awful. It only gives you one piece of the meaning of sex. Now let's, grain of truth, let's give it a salute because our culture is stupid here. Sex does have a tendency to make babies. Okay? Everything in our culture is trying to erase that, pretend like that doesn't happen. No, it certainly does, right? That's an important point. It's a beautiful point. But is that all it's for? No way. No way. It only answers this tiniest part of the meaning of sex. Not only that, a huge theological problem thinking that your body or the physical is second rate or not important. That is simply not what Christians believe. Third one. Huge in our day. Sexual romanticism. And that would be explained by saying this My sexual feelings and my practices, they define me. This is who I am. So sexuality is self expression that liberates, it's freedom. And the core issue here is self. And I define myself, and I do as I feel, and I do as I want. I'm the authority. I don't know if you're paying attention to pop culture at all. Have you heard of the song Take Me to Church? If you go to church, you probably were like, oh, what? Take me to church. Okay. The video on YouTube has received over 200 million views. So evidently it's out there, in pop culture. One of the lines here is, my church, in the song, it says, my church offers no absolutes. She tells me, worship in the bedroom. The only heaven I'll be sent to is when I'm alone with you. No masters or kings when the ritual begins. There's no sweeter innocence than our gentle sin. In the madness and soil of that sad earthly scene, only then I am human. Only then I am clean. So, according to this song, which is well loved in our culture and represented in a million ways, where do you worship? The bedroom. Where's heaven? In the sexual moment. Where's the innocence? The sexual moment. Where's, what does it mean to truly be human? It's a sexual experience. What do you think? Is this, is this the core of who you are, your sexual experience? You know, it works great for the movies, right? And the romance novels and the music video. But for anybody who lives in the real world, sex isn't always like that. <laughs> relationships aren't like that. Is is that who you are? A sexual expression. Gosh, in this view, the self is nearly God and sex is nearly worship, right? That's the way it's looked at. This is what it means to live. This is satisfaction. I got a few problems with this. First of all, it's a very selfish way of looking at things. As long as I'm feeling satisfied, that makes the sexual experience good. Well, what's the next question? Well, what if you don't feel satisfied? What are you going to do with me then? What if the romance isn't there anymore? Not only that, I'm not convinced that sexual experience is enough to identify you or to satisfy you. Do you hear what the culture is telling you? Unless you're having this kind of mind-blowing, amazing sexual experience in your life, you're not really a human being. You're not really living. What a harsh, awful, exclusive, improper, wrong untrue thing to say so sure grain of truth sexual realism or romanticism sorry grain of truth the sexual experience is powerful right it's passionate it's amazing and it taps into that it it rejects the sexual realism saying no it's not just a physical thing there's something more to it and i agree with that it rejects sexual platonism saying no it's not just for kids there's more to it i agree with that but i'm not going to make it everything are you It's not everything. It can't be everything. Okay, so what is it? I want to give you a fourth view today. And I just say it like this. It's covenantal sex. This is the idea of sex that gives you the meaning. Sex as covenant. So it would be this idea that sex is the body expressing covenant. What's that? It's a permanent devotion to someone else. And sex is meant to express that. It's meant to create that. So let me show you where I get this. We're going to see it, hopefully, from this text in Corinthians. Three basic points as we go to, through this text. Number one is going to be what we and the Corinthians tend to get wrong. It's in verses 12 to 14. Then we're going to do, We're going to look at the beauty of God's covenant with us in Christ. Uh, and then finally, we're going to look a little bit at what that means to, to live it out in our lives when it comes to sexuality. Okay. So what we tend to get wrong, the beauty of God's covenant in Christ, and then living it out. Let's see what we, the Corinthians, tend to get wrong. Look at verses 12 to 14. Do you see the quotations in verse 12? That's really important for reading Corinthians. So look at that first line, verse 12. All things are lawful for me. The reason your translation puts that in quotes is because that's probably a letter from the church in Corinth to Paul. So when he says that, he's quoting them. And then he's going to answer it. Okay, so let's look at what they're saying. Verse 12, all things are lawful for me. What does that mean? Well, for them, they, they, they thought they had reached spiritual amazingness. They thought they were varsity Christians. They were, Paul is constantly confronting them for their pride. And it's expressed in so many ways. So they, they think, well, we're so filled with the spirit. Now everything that we desire is, is right. And, and, and all things are lawful for me. I can do anything now. In Christ, right? Nothing's unlawful. So I can do whatever I want. And I think what they're, what they're saying here is that they have a false understanding of freedom. A false understanding of freedom. Just like our culture. What's it mean to be free? Is it to do whatever you want whenever you want? How many of you are like, yeah, that's what it means to be free. I do what I want. I'm free at Mick Jagger. I'm free to do what I want. You know, he also saying, "I can't get no satisfaction." Well, of course, it can't be free to do whatever you want because there's other people in the world. You can hurt them. You can destroy yourself. By the way, if if we're being honest, vulnerable moment, have you ever wanted something that in the end you were like, "That was absolutely terrible." I have. Okay. What if we tried on a different view of freedom? We'll look at that in a second. The, the second thing he wants to correct. So they're saying, all things are lawful for me. We're, we, we choose what's right for us. We're free to do what we want. Then the next thing they have wrong is the view of the body. So you see their quote in verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. Doesn't that sound a lot like the sexual realism? Hey, I got a stomach, so I need to eat, and I got sexual organs, and so I need to use those too. Probably right on on line with sexual Platonism. The body is demeaned. It's not so much important. What's important is this spirituality. So they have a wrong view of the body. They've demeaned it. It's not as important. Look at Paul's answer to them. Verse 12 again. All things are lawful for me, they say. What does he say? Okay. But not all things are helpful much in there but it's like this question of so you're just going to be someone who you just do what you want all the time no matter what and you're not going to think about what's good or what's beneficial or what helps others shouldn't you be more than just desires and he says it again verse 12 all things are lawful for me but i will not be what dominated mastered by anything He's saying if you don't put boundaries on some of your desires, you're calling it freedom, but really you're just a slave. You're a slave to sinful desires. You're not free at all because you've missed your purpose. True freedom is to find your purpose and live in it. As one pastor says, the fish may want to go hiking to the top of the mountain. He wants to breathe the free air and see the views. He's not really made for it. Where does he look good? In the water. He's designed for the water. God has designed things. It is the way it is. He made it. What is that? You're designed for something. It's not this false freedom of determining yourself and doing whatever you please. It's not demeaning your body. Rather, look what Paul says. You're made for more. I won't be dominated by anything. I'm escaping slavery. Verse 13. So, so he wants to correct their view on freedom in the body. Freedom, he says, in verse 13, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but what is it meant for? Do you see it? The body's not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. What are you made for? What are you made for? You're made for Jesus. That's what you're designed for. That's where you find your satisfaction. That's where you find your identity, your meaning, your purpose, your security. That's it. You're made for that. That's true freedom. To be awake to follow Jesus. To serve Jesus. And then with the body, look what he says in verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach is for food. And what's Paul's response to that? God's going to destroy both one and the other. How many of you are like, what? Why'd you bring that into it? Well, think about it for a moment. What's going to happen to your stomach and your sexual organs and everything else about you? You're going to die. And then what? And then what? And then you stand before God. And then you stand before God and He wants to know what you did with yourself. He made you for Himself. And then He wants to know what you did with yourself. Doesn't the sexual desire get a little bit smaller? Isn't it put in context when you think of judgment day and standing before Jesus? I have this desire. I must follow it now. Bigger things are happening. You live for bigger things. So there's that one aspect, but then there's this amazing positive aspect. Look at this. The body's not... Meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord, this is amazing. The body's not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And, and what? The Lord for the body. The Lord Jesus is a big fan of the body. Remember, there's this worldview. The spiritual is so great in the body, the flesh. That's, that's not as great. What what do we have in our Christian worldview that says no, that's not true? What did, what did the eternal Son of God come and live in? Right? God made the body, Genesis, and said, It's good. And then Jesus validated that infinitely by saying, I'm gonna wear one. He became incarnate for the body. And what happened with his body in verse 14? God raised the Lord. And will also raise you by his power. Your body is not secondary. It's going to last forever. Did you know you're going to have a heaven? In heaven you're going to have a body. Recognizable, amazing, beautiful, forever. What does this say about the value of the body? It's good. It's meaningful. So you can see what the Corinthians are doing, can't you? Hey, I'm free. To follow my desires and plus the body's no big deal anyway. So, who cares if I go get a prostitute? You see? Doesn't matter. Who cares if I'm sleeping with my girlfriend? It's the, it's the spiritual it's important. It's my desires. Who cares if I'm looking at porn? Some people say um I was told by somebody a long time ago, nobody here. And they said, you should quit talking about theology so much. We should just love one another. I tried to be loving. What is the statement, we should love one another, by the way? We should. That's a moral statement. We should do what? Love one another. And you'll have your definition of that. You know what that is? And it'll probably come to what you believe about life and God. You know what that statement is? It's theology. There's a, there's a band, a Christian band. One of their lines was, I don't need theology to know God is good to me. God is good. What is that? Theology. It's a study of God. I don't need theology to know theology. Okay. Ideas have consequences. They have real consequences. And your heart embraces theology every day. You probably don't spell it out, you don't write it down in a book, but you believe it. And you're thinking, this moment is what matters. You're thinking, I need to follow my desires. You're thinking, I need this, I need that. And those are theological thoughts. What if they're wrong? This is incredibly important. And so Paul says, listen, I want you to know, Corinthians, freedom is to see who you are in Christ and live accordingly. And the body has worth and value. And it's not just casual what you do with it. No such thing as casual sex. Because your body has value. It means things. So when it comes to the meaning of sex, we have to know our purpose. And as Paul's shown us, our purpose is... Our purpose is to find freedom in living for Jesus. Second thing, the the Christ covenant with us. Look at verse 15 again. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Just suck on that for a moment. Think on that. If you've trusted in Jesus, who he is, and what he's done for you, you are united to him. You're connected to him. What does that mean to have the, the king of kings and the lord of lords knowing you personally and being connected to you? You're not far away. Close to him. He's close to you. He's aware of you. The amazing reality is that God is in covenant with us through Jesus Christ. Personal, permanent devotion to us. It's amazing because in our sinful rebellion, right, we've broken the covenant. It's so shocking and scandalous to read the Old Testament and have God call his people whores. As they were worshipping other gods. Worshipping idols. It's as if he's the husband. And this people are the bride. And worship and devotion is the connection. The covenant faithfulness. And to abandon him and worship other gods is like adultery. And God calls himself in Exodus 34 I think it is. He calls himself jealous. There's a bad kind of jealousy right? Wanting stuff you can't have. Coveting. That's not what. That's not what God is. There's a good kind of jealousy. Okay? If I go out to lunch with my wife and somebody flirts with her, um my radar will I'll awaken, okay? This would never happen. What if she liked it? She wouldn't. What if she liked it? I'd be, I'd be over. I'd be, I'd be distraught, I'd be overcome, overwhelmed. I'd be jealous. And what if I wasn't jealous? What if you were there observing? Somebody flirting with my wife. She likes it. And I'm like, eh, it's okay. What would you think of me? You would be like, something is wrong. Desperately, awfully wrong. Okay. Did you know God is jealous for you? For your heart? For your mind? He wants all of you. He's not a happy vending machine grandpa in the sky. He is to be our total devotion. That's who he is. That's what he deserves. He's our God. He's our God. He's jealous. And the beautiful thing is, can you see what he's done? Can you see how much God wants us as his possession? He's made a covenant with us through Jesus Christ. Jesus lived, here's the heart of the gospel, right? Jesus lived the perfect life of obedience and love for the Father. He did it. He accomplished it. He did what we could not have not done. He did it for us. Why? So that we could be considered righteous and justified and brought in to the presence of God. Jesus died on a cross, shed his blood, took all the wrath of a holy God on himself As your substitute, as my substitute, to pay for my sin. Why? In part at least, so that you could be forgiven and brought into the presence of a holy God. Jesus rose from the dead to show his victory, to show who he is, but also to accomplish something. Do you know what he accomplished? Your adoption to bring you to the Father. Or another image from Scripture. The wedding to bring you to Christ. Jesus wants all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. What's the the ultimate command? Love the Lord your God casually, occasionally, when it's convenient. Oh, love the Lord your God with, really the key word is, all. All. All I am, heart, soul, mind, and strength. All. Devotion. Because... Has God loved you casually, informally, conveniently, occasionally? Look at the cross to see the measure of his devotion to you. It's so humbling. I'm so humbled there. Because my measure of passion for him falls so short of his measure of passion for me. He made covenant through, with us through faith in Jesus Christ. I want to give you some elements of, the, of covenant faithfulness. Um, I, could, I could do all this from scripture very easily, but for time's sake, I'm not going to. If you want to, let's get coffee, okay? And I'm going to be cheesy here a little bit. I'm going to do a cheesy acronym. It's what pastors do, okay? Bear with me. Super, super covenant. You ready? You know what acronyms are for? Supposedly, they help you remember. Super covenant, S-U-P-E-R, covenants. What is a covenant like? What is God's covenant with us like? uh, Self-giving, self-sacrificial. Of course, right? What did Jesus do to have you? He gave himself up to have you, sacrificed for you. And as a result of that, what's our response to him? Take up your your cross. There's There's a response. Jesus, I'll give away anything to have you. Self-giving, part of the covenant. Unified, S-U, unified. You're connected to Jesus. You're a a member of Christ, his body, his bride. We're together. Togetherness is what we're after. We love to be with the Lord. We're unified. That's heaven. P, S-U-P, permanent. Permanent. Don't you love resting on the fact that Jesus is never going to let you go? He's never going to give up on you. He wants you forever. It's permanent. No going back. Self sacrificial, unified, permanent, exclusive. Exclusive. Does Jesus' love have a measure of exclusivity? Certainly, we could say it's a complicated idea, right? Does God love everybody he's made? Certainly, in a way, absolutely. Does Jesus have a special love for the church? Husbands love your wives? Does Christ love the. Church? Is Jesus a polygamist? i got lots of ladies. No way! He's got one lady, special covenant love for her. That's his people, by grace through faith. There's an exclusivity. And what about us? Hey, all gods are the same. We're Christians. I love lots of things, and Jesus sometimes. Is that us? No. Who do you love? I love Jesus. That old song, you can have all of this world, give me Jesus, nobody else. You willing to toe the line for that? I, I think I am. I want him. Exclusive, last one. Relational. It's relational. John 17, the high priestly prayer, I want him to know me. Don't, don't you, isn't it amazing? You don't just get to know about Jesus and be saved by Jesus. You get to know Jesus and be saved for Jesus. I know you. He knows all of us. You've searched me. You've known me in the Psalms. You know when I wake up. You know, you know all my ways. He knows us. Those are elements of covenant, right? Self-sacrificial, unified, permanent, exclusive, relational. Okay, now be amazed. What does this mean for sex? Well, just everything. You're members of Christ. Now look at verse 15. It's really going to surprise you, I think. Shall I take then... The members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute. And what's Paul's answer? Never. No way. Okay, no. We should at least be like, wait, what? Because who are you in your identity? You're a member of Christ? And how did that happen? Faith, I hope, right? Trust. I trust the gospel. God unified me to Christ. Okay. Unified to Christ, that's the, that's the gospel, that's faith, that's worship, that's God's covenant. And you should never be members of a prostitute. Now what does that mean? Members of the same club? Don't ever go bowling with a prostitute. No. Thanks brother. I have to slip a five every once in a while to get people to laugh at my jokes. Obviously, what kind of membership is this? that kind of membership how do you get that kind of it, this is a unification that comes from sex this is a sexual union now think of the context a prostitute is he saying don't marry a prostitute he's not saying that at all in fact god says i did it in the old testament okay his prophets did it it's not a marriage thing it's a 30 minutes thing and yet it's union Look what he says next. Don't you know that he who's joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? I'm going to go ahead and guess that's not the way men think about prostitutes. I paid her, I used her, I enjoyed her, but now I'm done with her. Paul says, oh no. Your body made a covenant with her. You became one body with her. And then he quotes Genesis, which is about Adam and Eve's marriage and their union. The two will become one flesh. So you just did Adam and Eve physical covenant making with a woman you don't remember her name and you're never going to see again and you don't care about. Do you see why he's kind of outraged? He's saying, you've taken this thing, sex, which is meant to make covenant. And you've exploited it. And you've denied it. And you've twisted it. And it's immoral. And you've lied to that lady. And you could say, well, I paid her. It was consensual. Well, you still lied to her. And she lied to you. That's not what sex is for. Sex is covenantal. It's what God made it to be. It's the promise of permanent devotion. Now remember, super, self, self-sacrificial, unified, permanent, exclusive, relational. You tell me, isn't this what sex should be? Self-sacrificial? When sex is the body saying, I am giving myself to you for your blessing. And reciprocally so. As opposed to saying, I'm going to use you for a few minutes. That's immoral when it's selfish, sexual immorality. What about unified? Unified. A beautiful line in Genesis, and they were naked and not ashamed. It's more than just the bodies, right? It's to be known and to be safe. Only in covenant can you be fully known and safe. I don't want to be fully known by any of you, except for Jesus and my wife, mostly. There's still awful things in my head, right? We all have awful things in our head. But I don't want to be known. i wouldn't, wouldn't you be ashamed to be fully known by anyone in this room? Don't look. But in covenant, right, Jesus has promised. He, he bled for us and said, I love you no matter what. And we can say, we learn to say as Christians, search me and know me, God. Know all of it because I'm safe with you. You've made a promise to me. I can say that with my wife, you can know all me, all my flaws, all, everything I've got, because she loves me, we're in covenant. We are unified. And so immoral sex denies that unity. It says, oh, I'll be physically union with you for a little bit, or relationally unified for a while, a couple weeks, a couple months, but I'm not promising myself to you. So therefore it's inconsistent, it's a lie. So good sex, super sex, if you want to be cheesy with my acronym. Unified. What else? Permanent. Permanent. I'm yours forever. That's what the body says. I'm yours forever. I'm not leaving. So sexual sexual immorality is I'm yours for a while. Covenantal sex permanent. E exclusive. Exclusive. Well, our hearts already know this. You don't have to argue this in culture. Exclusive. I'm only yours, and you're only mine. Finally, relational. I'm committed to all of you. Not just your parts or your looks or your performance. But who you are in total. In the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening. Your past, your present, your future. You, I love. I'm in relationship with you. Covenantal sex. Folks, that's going to answer every need and every question about sex. Are we made for it? Sure we are. We have the desire. Big time. Is it only for kids? (laughs) No, it's about a lot more than that. It's expressing covenant. But is that a good environment for kids to grow up in? Two people in covenant with one another? Dad and a mom who love each other for their whole lives? Is that a a nice setting? Of course. Every social science proves it. It is the right place for kids. Isn't it amazing? God makes his covenant with us. We have new life. and I make a covenant with my wife. and There's five new lives unbelievable life giving and romanticism okay listen is is sex beautiful and wonderful yes it is and covenantal sex says yes it is yes it is it's a it's a mini picture of heaven uh, just an appetizer of being together with Christ but covenantal sex also says hey it's not everything that's not even close to everything what's the real deal when it comes to the covenant It's not me acting it out with my body, although that's incredibly important. The real deal is what we can all have through faith in Jesus. God has made a covenant with you. That's the real deal. And so I can enjoy sex in the right context. One day it will be taken away. It's not everything. Jesus is everything. So can you see now why Paul says this in verse 18? Flee from sexual immorality. You've got to run from, from messing this up. It's too important. It's too beautiful. And then he says this line that it's hard to interpret maybe. He says, every other sin the person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his or her own body. I'm not totally sure what to do with it, except I, I think I can feel it. Can you? There's a, it impacts us deeply, sexual immorality. And if you look at the waves of its effects in culture, depressions, addictions, divorces sometimes, AIDS, abortion, poverty, loss, all connected parts of this picture. It's devastating. It's devastating. Christians, we have the answer here that the world can't find. Covenantal. So we need to live it out. We need to live it out. Look at verses 19 to 20. Last point here. Don't you know that your body is what? Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. And you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So, what's our ethic here? Glorify God with your body. Amazing things, right? As you trusted in Jesus, God filled you with the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. He ha- you have him. He's with you, in you even. What does that say about the value of your life and the value of your body and what you do with it? You can't say enough. It's so valuable. Not only that, you were bought with a price. What's the price Jesus paid for you? Ten bucks? Is it a lease? No, he shed his blood to have you. An infinite price to have you. His life. So, how should we respond? What do we want to do? God's made a covenant with me. He's given me this body. I have the Holy Spirit. What should I do? I want to glorify him. Okay, church words. What does that mean? Church, glorify him. That means his beauty, and in this context, the beauty of his covenant, shone like a neon sign to the world, saying, This is what God looks like. This is God's character in me. I want to be like Jesus. I want to show what he's like, especially in how I handle my body. I want to glorify God. So, what does it mean for singleness? Because we're all single sometimes, right? That's the biggest category. What's it mean for singleness? Well, if sex is covenantal, where does sex belong? In a covenant called marriage. And so, boy, it could be easy to think as a single person, well, I don't get to glorify God in this game because I'm not married. That's totally false. There's two ways of looking at the Christian life. And we live in this already but not yet weird mix, don't we? Are you saved? Yes. Are you saved? No. Well, are you saved? Yeah. Jesus died for me. I believe it. Okay. And have you experienced all the blessings that will come with it? Is this as good as it gets? In other words, I'm asking you. No, I'm going to go to heaven. Then I'll be saved, saved. All right? Already but not yet. Two angles on the gospel story from singleness and marriage. When you're single and you say, I want to glorify God with my body, and so therefore I'm going to, be, I'm going to abstain from sex because sex is covenantal and belongs in a covenant, what are you doing? You are glorifying the reality of we're waiting for Jesus. And even though it's a struggle and we don't have what we want yet, it's coming and we're waiting. And you're glorifying a lot of other things too. You're glorifying the church because you're saying ultimate family isn't just the kids I make, it's God's people. You're bringing glory to God. You're bringing glory to Jesus who walked a hard road for the joy set before him. And you're showing the world, yeah, I'm doing it too because I honor what God has made in sexuality. It belongs in covenant. So because you're in covenant with Christ, you're waiting for the fulfillment of the covenant with your abstinence. Huge glory to God. Okay, and what about marriage? I'm going to blow through this next part really quick. 7, 1 to 5. Now, oh, these poor Corinthians. 7, verse 1, look at this real quick. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. You know, they're probably, because they're so Gnostic-like and they think the spiritual's great and the body's bad, they have actually said, oh, it's great for us to go to prostitutes, but... We don't need to have sex inside of marriage. It's amazing, the human rebellion, right? What does God make make sex for? The body-making covenant. And so in our sin, we say, we're going to do that outside of marriage, and then we're not going to do that inside of marriage. And God's like, "Ah, that's backwards. Well, that's sin. Then Paul says, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, each woman her own husband. Now, some commentators really kick Paul around for this line Because they think, this is all Paul thinks marriage is for. You know, if you can't handle your lust problem, get married. What would be your response to that? I would say you probably have only read two verses of Paul, evidently. Ephesians 5. Other places as well. This is not everything Paul thinks about marriage. Who's he talking to? He's talking to an immature group of people. And his thing is, you guys quit with the sexual immorality. Marriage will help. That's all he's saying. It's the bottom of the barrel. It's all he's saying. Marriage will really help. But there's something amazing in verse 3. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. And a part of you is like, well, that's the church way to talk about sex without being offensive. Or conjugal rights. What? And likewise is the wife to her husband. But then a, a huge line, verse 4. For the wife does not have authority over her body. And now if we're skeptics again, we're seeing, see, look, patriot patriarchy oh keep reading likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body the wife does that is an amazing line for first century just validated women nobody else is saying in that culture the wife has authority over the husband's body remember good old demosthenes i got a couple mistresses and i got some concubines and i got a wife and paul's like no your wife owns you But what is this, conjugal rights, belonging to one another? It's covenant. Don't you see? In covenant, you now have not only the right, but the honor of glorifying God by doing what? Having sex. Verse 5, do not deprive one another, except for occasionally when you're like, baby, we should pray. Now, Paul's talking about the norm. I need to say that. He's talking about the norm. There are contexts where a marriage is in a certain kind of a situation. Could be a lot of reasons. Where sex isn't right for the moment. Could be a lot of reasons. We're talking about the norm. In the norm, when two people are in covenant, in marriage, what should they do? Enjoy sex. When you make love to your husband or to your wife, it glorifies God. And that tiny piece of intimacy and joy and, un- and, and being unified and giving up yourself for the other. It isn't just a, well, we have this feeling, so we do it. It's a, we're made for this because the epic picture of history is we're all made to enjoy God and his covenant with us in Christ. And we get to heaven, Do you know what it's called? You know what that dinner's called? The wedding feast. The wedding feast, the real thing will be when we as God's people together come as his bride before Jesus Christ, the great husband. And then we know the true beauty, the true joy of what it means to be in covenant with Christ. So you see the meaning of sex is to express covenant within the covenant. And it becomes even then like a A sacrament, constantly renewing the covenant. And as you see here in verse 5, it kicks Satan in the teeth too. It's a protection. It builds you up. So, what's the point? What's your great purpose? You remember two things. Your ultimate purpose is to enjoy God through his covenant with you in Christ. That's what you're made for. You can have that if you'll repent and trust in Christ. You can have it. Trust in him, and he's made a covenant with you. Remember that. He loves you. He's committed to you. Second, okay, what's sexuality for? Glorify that covenant. Every part of your life, singleness, you're married, whatever your context, glorify God's covenant. And as I say that, I know many of us, we have messed this up. We haven't had integrity. We feel unworthy. We feel unable to change. If that's you, if you feel unworthy, if you feel unable to change, where should you go? Go back to that ultimate covenant. Jesus will forgive you of all your sins. Jesus will wash you clean of everything you've ever done or everything that's ever happened to you. He will take your shame. He will embrace you as his own. He will carry your burdens. He will take them and he will give you all, who, all that he is. Go to him right now if you're feeling that. If you need forgiveness, you need renewal, cleansing, go to him. His blood is enough. And if you're in a situation where you think, I need to change, I don't think I can, you have the Holy Spirit. If you look at Jesus enough and see how good he is, he will give you a greater satisfaction to where you can put aside those other things and say, I want to live for him. Let's pray. Father, I come before you as a sinner. I've broken your covenant in many ways. Lord, we thank you for your grace that you aren't content to leave us distant, far away, but rather you want to bring us near, and you've done it through your covenant in Christ. I pray for everyone here, Lord, that you would draw us to trusting in Jesus and that we would be amazed at your covenant commitment to us forever. Thank you. Thank you for your forgiveness and your cleansing that we can enjoy even now. And we pray, Lord, as we trust in here, you would give us the strength, the integrity, the wisdom to handle our bodies in a way that glorify you with integrity, honoring that covenant, whatever situation of life we're in. We love you, Jesus. We thank you that you're a great husband. You're going to come for us soon. We pray this in your name. Amen.